it's the recurring news that sweeps the headlines that some prophecy guru has figured out when Jesus is going to return. When the predictions don't come true, non-believers scoff and then comfort themselves with the conclusion that the world will continue as always. Before you buy into this conclusion, let's take a look with our study leader Dave Wurtson at what Jesus himself said about predicting the date and the time of his return to earth. Mention Y2K and mention meteors that are coming from outer space and instantly you've got an audience. Have you noticed the new TV series that have come out? There's a bunch of them that are talking about invasions from outer space. And if you want to publish a book, what you want to do is go home and you want to write a really powerful story about the end of the world, the end of the world. I'm not saying that there aren't environmental concerns, but some of the idea of the world getting too hot and the incredible ecological crisis we're facing is the present-day statement about that. The idea is just to scare the willies out of you because we can move you to action. Well, Christianity has its version of the future, of the idea of Y2K and crisis and everything, and that is periodically it sweeps Christendom that a new Hal Lindsey prophetic prophecy guru had figured out from the feasts of the Old Testament and some esoteric numerical values in the Bible that we now know exactly the date when Jesus Christ will return. How many of you in your lifetime, in fact, Terry shaking his head, Terry just told me two weeks ago or three weeks ago on Wednesday night that there's another prediction that's coming out. The guy that predicted several years ago, he's done it again. If you study church history, all down through the centuries, believers like yourselves have followed a prophecy guru. They've sold their belongings. They've even gone out and waited on mountains for Jesus to come back. What does God's word actually teach us? If I were to ask the Son of God, when are you coming back, how would he answer the question? How many of you would like to ask Jesus? Jesus, you're the one that's going to come back, so we want to ask you when you come back. We're going to answer that question this morning because we're actually going to be able to listen to some of our brothers and sisters in Christ. They're going to ask Jesus about the exact time is going to come back, the chronological events leading up to that, about the Kairos moment, the happening moment when he comes, and we're going to listen to him respond. Let's turn to the book of Acts, chapter 1. We started this incredible study about what Jesus continues to do and to teach in our midst, and we begin with verse 6 today. We'll pick our discussion up in verse 6. We're in the pre- Days before the Holy Spirit comes, we're in the 40 days after Jesus rose again from the dead, that for 40 days he appears periodically to the disciples. And last time as we began the book, we had Jesus teaching us about the coming promise of the Holy Spirit. I want you to all have that anticipation because that's what's in the future in Acts chapter 2. Jesus, during this 40-day period, is getting his disciples to lay the foundation for what you're a part of if you know Jesus as your Savior. And if we pick it up in verse 6, let's read it. It says, so when they, that would be fundamentally the 11 disciples absent Judas. We found out later in the text that there are about 120. The mother of Jesus is with them. Jesus' brothers have now joined. Primarily, Luke is focusing us on the original eyewitness 11 disciples. It says, when they had gathered together, they asked him, and here's the question. 
The disciples asked the question, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So it's the question of the kingdom. How is Jesus going to answer that? Look what he says. He said to them, you need to read the latest Hal Lindsey book. You need to be sure that you put together all the feasts because you can figure out exactly, is that what he says? No, he said, it is not for you to know the chronology, the time, or the exact happening, that's what the word stress, because the time or date that the Father, it's God the Father who sets by his own authority. Then Jesus says, okay, it's not for you to know exactly the time when I'm coming back. That's the Father's authority. But you will receive power. So what are we supposed to focus on? Just before Jesus ascended to heaven, what are we supposed to focus on? He makes a promise, and then he also gives us a very powerful assignment. He says, but you, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you are to be my witnesses. The key word of our section and the key word of the book of Acts. The 11 disciples are witnesses, and we'll talk about what it means for them to be witnesses, what it means for you to be witnesses. You are to be my witnesses by the power of the Spirit. Where are the original disciples supposed to be witnesses? They're supposed to be witnesses in Jerusalem. That's where they're sitting. That's where they're gathered together. That's where they're meeting with the Lord intermittently during these 40 years. Then it's uh, 40 days, I mean. Then it says you'll be witnesses in Judea. That's the area all around Jerusalem. It's the heart of Israel. It's David's country. David from the tribe of Judah. Judea is the area that the Judeans controlled. The area around Jerusalem a little bit south. Then it says you're supposed to go cross-culturally. You're supposed to go to the dirty, rotten Samaritans. And I'm paraphrasing a little bit. But that's as soon as the disciples heard, you got to go up into Samaria... These Jewish 11 disciples are going, yuck, we don't want to go there. Don't want to do that. It's like asking Texans to go up to the Northeast and try to minister to the Yankees. It's like asking a bunch of you as redneck Texans that we really want you to go and you really need to go into the Islamic world. You need to reach people that are a lot different than you. And that's what he's saying. You need to go into Samaria. You need to go across culturally. You need to go to the people you didn't ordinarily go to. Thirdly, we expand it to the ends of the earth. And I want you to feel, as I read this section, I said, this is crazy. I mean, these, I got 11 guys huddled. They're all scared to death. You can multiply it to about 120. That's 120, that's it. What in the world, Jesus, are you saying to the end of the earth? So when, when, I, when Luke first wrote the book of Acts, even as the gospel was going out, as we learned from this book, it's still, I'm saying, that's crazy. The gospel going to the ends of the earth. After he said this, after Jesus promised them that they were going to receive power and they would be witnesses, then he said this, he was taken up. Jesus was taken up before their very eyes. This is the ascension, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going. I would too. And when suddenly two men dressed in, in the ideas of dazzling white, so if you want to know what your heavenly garments will look like, uh, I don't know exactly what the, you know, what, the way that they'll be shaped and everything, but I know they're going to be dazzling. 
and there'll be white. And, and that's what the, how the angels appear. We're going to be greater than the angels, but we'll be like them. And so these two angels appear, evidently. It says, and they stood beside them, and they said, men of Galilee. Now we introduce the group where the disciples are from. That's their hometown. All the 11 disciples, uh, for the most part, they're Galileans. It says, why do you see them? I love this. Why are you standing there looking into the sky? Why are you sky gazers? The same Jesus who was taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you've seen him go into heaven. So they say, stop gazing at the sky. I want you to look around you. I want you to look at the world. So the question we want to ask ourselves this morning is, are you as a believer, as a witness, are you a sky gazer or are you a world impactor? Now, let's begin with the first question that the disciples asked. What about this kingdom thing? What about the question about Israel's kingdom? That's in verse 8. Did you notice, did Jesus say, hey, that's crazy. There's not ever going to be a kingdom that's given to Israel. Has anyone noticed? Did Jesus say that? When the disciples asked him, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel, did Jesus respond You Jews are so bigoted. You're so arrogant. I can't believe you believe you're going to have a kingdom that rules the world. Is that the way Jesus answered the question? You need to think hard about that. I also want to relate it. Remember when I taught you about how you put the whole Bible together. The Bible starts out in Genesis chapter 1. Let us make man in our image. In the image of God, let us make them male and female. And let them... Can you finish it? Let them... Rule. They're supposed to be fruitful and multiply, but then they rule over God's creation. I want you to know that one of the major themes of the Bible that you need to study, you want to look at the developing redemptive story of who has the right to rule. And you'll understand a lot of the Bible. Because all the Bible in the Old Testament, you have a group of people. I I just whet your appetite a little bit. Like Pharaoh decides he's going to rule the world. He's going to eliminate God's children, going to throw all the babies into the river in the book of Exodus. What's going on there? I'm going to rule the world. God says, no, you're not. And he delivers the children of Israel out of Egypt, and he gives the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, and he brings the people into the land. You have this incredible kingdom that develops. It comes to its high point under the period of Solomon, but rising up to Solomon, you have King David who is the ultimate up to that time. Everything is focused on. He's a son of Judah. He is the from Bethlehem. He is going to be the king. He's the most gifted man that Israel's ever produced up to that time. He unites the kingdom. And then his son Solomon, who's a, whose name itself means peace, unites the kingdom. That's the high point of Israel's kingdom in the Old Testament. And that's what the Israelites are thinking about. I mean, that's what the apostles, when they ask the question, they say, will you now, we now have a son of David born in Bethlehem, able to do miracles, able to feed us, able to heal all of our physical diseases, all the things you want the government to do for you. And they say, will you now walk in, we're in Jerusalem, will you overthrow the Roman Empire and will you set up the kingdom of Israel on earth. Now, I want you to know in the first century, that was really a hot question. You know, this is about 33 AD. In 62 AD, the world explodes in Jerusalem 
and the Jews unite together and have what they thought was going to be their revolution that was going to bring in the kingdom. So this is hot stuff. I want you to feel what that question was like. Across Jerusalem and across Judea, there was incredible passion. You think you get hot? Like, we've just started as Americans. In some ways, I love the freedom of our country, but one of the things, when we get ready for another presidential election, in some ways as a pastor, I hate it. Because all of you get focused. Wow, this is going to be it. And, and man, this leader is going to bring in the end of the world and, and peace on earth and goodwill towards men, and he's our hope for all mankind. And you get all excited about it. I want you to feel that in the first century, what the apostles are asking, will you now be our great political leader? And I want you to know, Jesus doesn't say, I will never do that. In fact, the Bible ends by having Jesus come back in the book of Revelation. He defeats all of his opposition, all the Hitler-like people, and he sets up a kingdom on earth. That's how the book of Revelation ends. And then he sets up an eternal kingdom. If you believe in Jesus today, Jesus doesn't say, no, I'm not going to ever rule on earth. I'm going to rule in some heavenly spiritual kingdom. I have nothing to do with planet earth. That's not what he says. He says, I'm coming back. And I'm going to fulfill all the earthly promises of the Old Testament. And this isn't bigoted. If you're an unbeliever here today and you're, you're seeking, if I sit in your shoes this morning, one of the questions I would ask myself what about the Jews? One of the questions that all of you should ask, because in, as you write the history of planet Earth, one of the major conflicts is over the Jews. And I, if I didn't know Jesus, I would say, why? They're less than 2% of the world's population. So those of you that have anti-Semitism and think the Jews are taking over the world, you would think that they're millions and millions and millions and millions. They're less than 2% of the American population and the world population. They are a little, tiny group. But you know what God says in his word? He says, in the story of government, in the story of world domination, there's going to come an ultimate Jew, and his name is Jesus, and he's going to set up a kingdom in Jerusalem. And it's not because the Jews deserve it or because they've earned it. It's not going to be because of their arrogance. In fact, when they finally have their king, they're going to be flat on their faces worshiping the one that they pierced, just like I hope you're doing this morning. You say, Dave, what does this mean to me? I want you to be really involved in the political system as witnesses. I want you to be really involved in the causes of justice as witnesses. I want you to really believe that it's important for us to have good judges and good lawyers and good, if I serve on the jury, I want you to show up and I want you to really give your time to that. I want you to be an incredible American citizen. But what I want you never to believe is that your ultimate cause in life is America is the hope of the world. Because it isn't. And if we ever confuse that, what I'm teaching you from the book of Acts, if you confuse that, you hurt the cause of Christ. It's very important to understand God's ruling program. Right now, the Dr. Luke has taught us, right now our Savior's gone to heaven and he's creating an invisible kingdom. 
of red and yellow, black and white, and there's no place on earth where I can go where there's a king physically ruling. He's now at the right hand of God. So right now I'm in a time where his kingdom needs to be inside of me. But my ultimate dream is in that Savior. You are a citizen of heaven before you're a citizen of America. It's very hard to teach you that because we're uniting those two things. And Jesus says, don't unite that because in the first century, it was hot, much hotter than even your reaction to what I'm saying now because the Jews are going to have a mounted military rebellion and they are going to try to throw off the Romans and they're going to be crucified by the thousands. They're going to be scattered all over the world. And if your hope was physical Israel can bring in the new age, you're going to die disillusioned. But if you listen to this resurrected Christ and you believed his spirit would come upon you, and if you believe the most powerful thing you could do as a lawyer, as a judge, as a doctor, as a fireman, as a policeman, as a teacher, the most powerful thing you could do is to bear witness to this ultimate king and what he did on the cross, what he did in the resurrection. And you live for that. When you're 90, if the Lord gives you strength, you'll still be not disillusioned, but you will be empowered. You will be excited. You will still be trying to reach people for Jesus. That's why it's so important. The question of the kingdom, I don't know when Jesus is coming back, but I know what he's commanded me to do. Jesus goes on this text, he says, the Messiah's answer was, you don't know the exact dates and what I want you to focus on. Nobody knows when Jesus is going to come back. Nobody knows the exact time. That's because he wants you to always be ready. But the Messiah has given us an incredible promise, and he's given us an incredible purpose, and that's what he goes on to. I love Jesus. He doesn't just say, well, it's not for you to know the time of the dates, and you can add that when the Gospel of Mark, Jesus himself in his earthly life even said, not even the Son of Man knows when he's going to come back, only the Father in heaven. Don't ask me to explain that. I don't know. In his humanity, he emptied himself, and he didn't know exactly when he'd come back. But he's, one thing I do know, whenever I hear someone says, I know when it's going to happen, and I'm, I know it's going to be this day, and I say, no, you don't. Because only the Father in heaven knows that. And we don't know, but I want to challenge you today as a church family, and I want to challenge myself. Jesus hasn't told us to stand around looking at the sky. This morning, I want you not to be standing around just looking at the sky. When is he going to come back? And this life is so horrible, and I just can't believe it's so bad. you got a job to do. What's the job? You're going to have the Holy Spirit come into your life. If you've received Jesus, the Holy Spirit come into your life, so you've received power. Jesus promises right here, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. That was given to the church. This morning, you're part of the church, and the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And that means you can be confident. It means you can rely upon him when you're totally discouraged. I found in my life at the times that I think I can't do it at all, and I'm crying, and I'm discouraged, and I'm ready to quit, I find out that's when, years later, I find out God used me. That's the incredible joy of you'll receive power. Jesus is telling us we can't do it. And it's an awesome thing just to come to a place in your life. And that's what we started out there. Remember we said unless the Lord, our verse for the year was unless the Lord 
builds the house, we labor in vain and build it. And that's what Jesus is saying. This is the New Testament saying you'll receive power from the Holy Spirit. And all the way through the book, you can start asking yourself and opening yourself. I want you to know as you go out into this week, the power of the Holy Spirit's upon you. Like I walk in the hospital room in intensive care at Baylor. And the family, a woman that I thought was, was not probably going to make it, was starting to recover a little bit. They needed to know where to go to rehab. I had just come from a rehab hospital, and I was able to affirm the decisions they were made. It opened up a door for them to call Mary, who's our resident non-licensed medical doctor. Now, can I time that? No. One of the incredible joys is that when the Spirit is moving in your life, these incredible, by chance happenings, happen. And there's power. There's power. And that's what I covet for every single one of you. Every one of you is wired to fit into the body of Christ. And when the Spirit is moving through your life, you're going to touch life. Like Mary Lee that taught us at the couples retreat. I thought, I, I forgot. You know, I had met her years ago. I said, hey, my name's Dave. She said, I know you're Dave, but you talked to me years ago when I was working at Chaparral Steel and I was totally burdened down. I thought Proverbs 31 woman, I thought I needed to do that all at one time. And you look at me and I, and all that you said it was, you said, Mary Lee, this is a lifetime, not a moment. You're not supposed to be the Proverbs 31 woman when you're raising four little kids and changing their diapers and trying to breastfeed them and trying to get them, you know, get them going in life. You're not supposed to be planting vineyards and being a powerful businesswoman all at the same time. She said, Dave, that saved me. I don't even remember saying that. That's the cool thing of the power of the Spirit. Now, what are we supposed to be? We're supposed to be a witness. What does it mean to be a witness? The 11 disciples, the fundamental witness was they had actually seen Jesus baptized by John the Baptist. They had actually seen Jesus do the miracles. They had actually seen Jesus crucified. And then now they were experiencing the resurrected glorified Jesus in these appearances. They are eyewitnesses. They're, they tell us that they met with him and they ate. They listened to his voice. He taught them about the kingdom of God, made this promise. That's what it initially meant. He says to these 11 disciples, you are the witnesses. Every one of you is a witness. This week, you're witnesses to what you have experienced what you've lived. Tom Curran had an accident this week. He's a witness to the accident. Somebody T-boned his van, and now he's already graduated up to a suburban, I think. So the Lord's blessing. But he's a witness. I don't know what happened at that scene. He's a witness to that. Then you would gather other people around. You all know what a witness is. Now, what are we supposed to be in the book of Acts? And instead of looking at the sky, you have a job to do, and your job is to be a witness. What are you supposed to be a witness of? The original disciples witnessed to the power that they actually saw Jesus crucified. They saw him raised. They now saw him ascending to heaven. So he's an authority. That gives you certainty. You can ask yourself, like if you're seeking, you don't know quite what you're going to do with Christ, you should ask yourself as you're reading the book of Acts, do I think these 11 guys, especially Peter in the first half of the book, is he a liar, a deceiver, a con artist? 
or is he a man of truth? You should ask yourself that because your life depends upon it. My answer to that question is I think Peter is a man of truth. I think Paul, he's born out of due time. Jesus appears to him. He becomes an eyewitness. So I believe him. That's what the text is telling us. It says you're to be witnesses. The original disciples start in Jerusalem. That's what this whole book's going about. We're going to start out in Jerusalem. Then we're going to go cross-culturally. Philip is going to be taken into Samaria. Then he's even going to be taken, kind of transmuted, and meet a guy going down to Ethiopia. And then we're going to end up the book in Rome. And to them, from Jerusalem, that's like moving towards the end of the earth, gospels planted in the center of the ancient world. And you're part of a culture today that since the early 1900s, you realize that in 1900, what I've been teaching today was a Caucasian, European, American thing for the most part. Africa, you've all heard the story, David Livingston, and the, the journalist shows up and says, David Livingston, I presume. And what David Livingston did mostly was pioneer and, and go after lions and discover lakes that no white man had ever seen. He only won one God of the Lord in his whole life, but thousands of Britishers Believers went to Africa because of him. Many of them died. When they went to Africa, they would take a coffin with them with their belongings. because That's the way you left Africa. And you've all heard those stories. When I was a kid, you got to reach all the Indians. So I remember the five martyrs being killed by the Alcas. Powerful stories that moved some of you right in this room. But you realize, as I speak to you this morning, you're in the minority. In the developing world, your brothers and sisters are praying for you. They think America could become like Europe. Because you're part of an incredible movement that the Lord is sweeping through Africa and sweeping through Latin America. Don't feel an American, well, I'm on the back water of that. No, this is our body. What I want you to realize is the power of the Spirit is moving upon us. You're part of a movement, like right in your own church family. You've heard me share, like we're reaching into the Middle East. When you pray for Marines fighting in Afghanistan, and you pray for the army that's trying to finish things up in Iraq, you need to be praying for our church family reaching into there. We can't talk much about it, but you need to pray for that. When you hear about problems in Thailand and Bangkok, you need to pray for Nate as he's going from one university to the next with his Thai buddies reaching college students for Jesus. As we get ready for Hope for Haiti, and you hear this week about the year anniversary of the terrible earthquake that took place, what you need to be thinking of, hey, we're going to be able to do that right here in Midlothian. We're going to be able to build homes and believers are going to be able to reach people through that powerful tool. Some of you say, oh, I can't believe America's going to hell in a handbasket. How many of you have said anything about the school system? What does it mean to be a witness? You know what it means to be a witness? At Vitoski, you can teach little kids after school. Do it. You can do it. Don't gripe about, boy, at school, back in the 50s, it was so great. We've got wide open opportunities today. You say, Dave, oh, you're lying to me. No, I'm not. Wednesday, a parent told me their little daughter, she's a middle school person. Her teacher was teaching her religion. And as they taught religion, her teacher spent hours and hours and hours on Islam. So she called and sued the school because we're spending much more time in Islam than we are in Christianity. That's the way a whole lot of you approach it. 
Don't do that. You become obnoxious when you do that. What do you do? She went to her teacher and said, could I buy you a Bible? The person said, yeah, I, I, it's not against the law. I guess I can. And she also said, why did you spend so much time on Islam when Christianity is by a million miles the dominant religion in our culture? Every student in this room, you can do that. You know what she just was? Tell me. Witnessing. I want every one of you to know Every one of your little kids can do that in any public school system, and I'll go to prison if they get in trouble for that as your pastor. Nobody in America, no student cannot do that. You can do that. And our little kids, that was one of the great joys, did that this week. On Wednesday night, in the middle of the week, a fireman comes to me. One of his buddies at the fire department says, hey, look at this, and tried to show him some pornography. And a fireman said, no, he looked away. And he told his buddy, by what he did, I only have eyes for my wife. And then we spent the next hour with him asking me questions, him telling me about how he's reaching out to the people he's working with in the fire department. That's a witness. So I want to close this service. Let's start with our Jerusalem a little bit. We don't have a whole lot of time. I just gave you two little examples. I could share with you like Pat and Ann at the couple's retreat started Friday night, and Ann shared how her sister, her precious sister, died in a horseback riding accident and how it just destroyed her mom. She shared how she was a good Southern Baptist Sunday school girl, but when she became a young woman, she just blew it all out. And Pat shared the counter story of how he was raised in an abusive family, like a brunkbuster father and, and, and then a superintendent in construction and, and alcoholism. They shared how the Lord brought Pat to Jesus. That's being a witness. He shared even how they come to Jesus. When they came to Jesus, then Anne left because now Pat's not an alcoholic. She can't control him anymore. He really wants to be the spiritual leader. That screws everything up if you're a controlling wife, so you leave. And they told this incredible story about how we as a church family prayed and brought that home. You know what that's being? It's being a witness. We just want to close the service, Heavenly Christ. We thank you that you are at the right hand of God. We thank you that we know that you are coming back. But we want to pray, Lord, that more than ever, that you would fill us and control us by your Holy Spirit. And we'd ask you, Lord, that we would be witnesses. And as we go through this book, Lord, today we just began a conversation about opportunities we have to bear witness to the death and resurrection and the ascension of Jesus in our hometown. As the book of Acts is going to cause us to lift up our eyes about crossing barriers and going into all the world. Lord, there's no way that I can do it, but I just ask you, Lord, that your spirit would blow like a mighty wind in our church family and make us more than ever witnesses in Midlothian and Ellis County witnesses in Texas, witnesses throughout the United States. And then I pray that you would use us to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Use this incredible instruction our Lord Jesus gave us, not to be standing around looking up at the sky, but instead to be looking at those that desperately need to hear the truth about this incredible one-of-a-kind Savior who conquered death and rose again. Help us to keep witnessing to one another about how Jesus is changing our lives 
and make that infectious as we talk to those that don't know Jesus yet. In Jesus' holy name we pray, amen.